A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. And later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Today, I'm speaking to Jean Lee. Jean is a senior fellow at the Wilson Center in Washington, DC, and the former Pyongyang bureau chief for the Associated Press. She's also the co-host of the terrific Lazarus Heist podcast about North Korean cybercrime. We'll discuss North Korea's latest missile launches, fears the regime may be preparing to test a new nuclear weapon, and the troubling outlook for the year ahead. Jean, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be talking to you, Katie. Well, there's a lot to discuss. I thought I'd start just by setting out how much we've seen over just the last six months. We've seen North Korea testing really all, all manner of, of new capabilities, including launching missiles from submarines and trains, what the regime claims is its first hypersonic missile. And then most recently on 24th of March, testing what appeared to be an intercontinental ballistic missile. You have written a great essay recently for the New York Times titled, Kim Jong-un is just getting started. So I wondered if you could start by just giving us a sense of what's driving all this and why we might be seeing this real increase in the tempo of weapons testing now. Yeah, part of the reason I wrote this essay, and I, I have to say that I thought about this essay well before this most recent spate of testing began because I felt that, you know, while it seemed that North Korea and Kim Jong-un were going quiet, I knew that they were ramping up for a very big year in 2022. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to remind the world that we may not be hearing much about them, but they are continuing to accelerate and build up that nuclear arsenal. And then, of course, as I was thinking about this essay, in January, we started to see really an unprecedented pace in testing, reminding us of really the fire and fury of 2017. But it's not entirely surprising for me, because as someone who spent so much time in North Korea, I looked at the North Korean calendar to try to gauge when we might start to see provocations. And that is a perspective that comes from being on the ground and knowing that a lot of the tension does revolve around the calendar. We in Washington and elsewhere tend to think about what messages are they trying to send us? That is so indicative of our worldview. Mm -hmm. But in North Korea, I just knew 2022, if we were there, 
was going was always going to be a huge year, just like 2012 was 10 years ago, because there's a trifecta of major milestones in North Korea in 2022. And just to lay those out, it's the 10th year of Kim Jong-un's rise to leadership. It's the 80th year since Kim Jong-il was born. So he's the late father of Kim Jong-un. And 110 years since Kim Il-sung, his grandfather, was born. And I should remind you that Kim Il-sung is a huge figure in North Korea. The calendar, North Korea's own calendar, the Juche calendar, is based, it starts Mm -hmm. with his birthday 110 years ago on April 15th. And with North Korea, everything, the entire ideology, identity, its being is focused on the Kim family. Mm -hmm. And so there was no doubt in my mind that this would be a year that Kim Jong-un would want to celebrate his family, his father, his grandfather himself, as a way to legitimize their rule of North Korea. And unfortunately... Each of these major milestones over the past number of years has been celebrated with launches. Mm -hmm. And it's such an interesting, we can perhaps get into this, but it's such an interesting strategy that has both domestic purpose and does send a message to the foes and friends abroad. And so I think it's very important to understand why they do these tests and what they seek to get Mm -hmm. out of them. Can you give us a sense of why that is? I think a lot of people looking at this from the outside would think, you know, North Korea is a desperately poor country from what we know people there are living in just atrocious conditions. Why would the regime spend so much money and put so much political effort into developing these weapons systems? What is the case it makes to its own people about why it needs to do this? It's an incredibly detailed strategy that is decades in the making. And it, I always talk about history, Korean history, as a way to understand the formulation of this really unique foreign policy, which is that for millennia, for thousands of years, Korea has always seen itself as the shrimp among whales, this tiny country that is sandwiched among major powers. And recognizing that they're always under threat. And in a way, the Kims have used that fear of the outside world, that fear of being absorbed, that fear of invasion by the Chinese, by the Japanese, and more recently, what they claim is fear of invasion by the United States, as a way to maintain a sense of identity. And they've they've used that in their modern ideology as well by creating a fear of absorption more in the modern era that would be the colonial period under Japanese rule. And then since the Korean War, fear of invasion by the United States, which has troops on the both in South Korea and 80,000 troops in the region in Japan, Guam and elsewhere. So it's interesting. They always try to raise the tension around this fear of a threat from the outside, which does bring a sense of unity among the people. That's a strategy that works in many countries that many leaders use. We certainly saw it here in the United States during um, the Trump era. And I think by raising tensions Kim Jong-un can tell his people, look, 
we are on the verge of war. So I need, we don't have much, but I need to invest in these weapons to protect us. And if I don't protect us, we won't exist. And by that, so that gives him the justification, the tensions, which are manufactured to a large degree, give him the justification to pour money into an arsenal, even when they don't have it. And so it's a really interesting cycle of violence that he relies upon. But that those weapons also give him legitimacy because he can say, look how I can defend you. And also, he can now prove, I think even with what's happening right now in Ukraine and Russia, that gives him further ammunition to show his people, further proof that if a country gives up its nuclear weapons, they're vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And if a country has nuclear weapons like Russia, they're untouchable. And so <laughs> it gives him that rationale to continue pouring money into a program, even when the people, as you note, are going without so much. And I have to say, there is a sense of pride among the North Korean people in these weapons, because they are actually impressed by their own ingenuity in being able to make these weapons when they have so little. What we don't know is when it crosses over into frustration, when the North Koreans will say, okay, that's you're spending all this money, but meanwhile, we don't have food, we don't have clean water, we don't have heat, we don't have electricity, we don't have medicine. That's the part that we don't know. But And so that reinforces his need to show his people that he's strong, that he has the right vision. And that's what this year is about, is to really boost his legitimacy. Mm-hmm. You have spent what must be a, a unique amount of time, particularly for an American journalist, uh, on the ground in North Korea, including during some of these major anniversary celebrations and during major launches. Can you take us on the ground into North Korea and just give us a sense of what is it like? Because here in the West, we, we see the headlines, we, we perhaps see a video come out a few days later showing the launch. But can you take us inside North Korea and give us a sense of what it's actually like there on the ground when something like this is going on? It's such a bizarre experience being a foreign correspondent on the ground in North Korea. It's an assignment that every foreign correspondent who's assigned to Korea wants to have that. We, we all want to have that experience of being inside North Korea. And yet the North Koreans are have perfected their skill in keeping not only us, but keeping their own people away from the information. So they've, they've been so good at controlling the flow of information. And it's not just us, it's also to the North Korean people. And so you may be on the ground Specifically. So, for example, I was on the ground specifically because we had been told there might be a big celebration or something. You know, as I said, I always knew, I always went in because I knew something was going to happen. There might be the possibility of a major missile launch. Because with, and I should back up and explain that Kim Jong-un wants to have these weapons to show off at these big milestone military mm-hmm. parades. He wants to have something new. And you always need to test them. You need to test them to to show that they're successful. And the tests are also part of the celebration. So we would go in and I would be prepared for news alert and urgent series on <laughs> a missile test. And the window for when we thought a missile test might happen might come and go with no word whatsoever. And then we might find out, though, from the outside world, our journalists who are monitoring these things, South Korean media, South Korean Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Japanese military, Japanese media, they are the ones who sometimes alert the world to 
a launch that may have gone awry or may have failed. But inside North Korea, so we're, we continue to report that, and I would report that from even though it's getting the information from my colleagues elsewhere, but zero information on the ground, no matter how many times I would ask officials, because they were not authorized to release inf- any information. And for their part, they may not have even known mm-hmm. What had happened? So it's really kind of a twilight zone situation where something has happened because you have CNN on or BBC in your hotel room because some hotel there there are several hotels that actually get outside cable TV, and yet on the ground there's zero information. Now I think that with the latest launch, it's interesting because the launch that happened earlier this month, we're seeing reports that it was a failure the previous launch, but that it just blew up over Sunan, which is a suburb of Pyongyang, and sent debris flying. And so that would be, it's so, it would be so interesting to find out what the people in Pyongyang saw, what the people around Pyongyang saw, and whether they questioned officials about what that was. But I know from being on the ground that you may be absolutely terrified, but still get no answer whatsoever to what just happened in the skies above mm-hmm. you. And so it really is indicative of the control over the flow of information that the North Koreans exert and how good they are at controlling the propaganda and really restricting not only uh, access to information, but uh, the North Koreans' access to information as well. But as you, uh, of course, if there is a successful launch, they will celebrate it in a big way in the coming weeks. And that will be, it's, it will on the ground feel like major propaganda, which it is in a certain sense. These launches right now will be about propaganda for the Kim family and for Kim Jong-un. And what is it like being in the middle of these big celebrations? For instance, events where the Kim leaders are there, how are they treated and how would you describe that experience to most people will we'll never get the chance to stand in the middle of Kim Il-sung Square and watch what happens in the middle of these big parades. So can you give us a sense of what that's when you're experiencing it in real life? It's theater. It's a lot of theater. And it's interesting because one of the few times that they they have brought in foreign journalists in the past, and of course, I should we should note that the border has been closed for more than two years, and so we haven't had journalists going in and out of North Korea the way that we had previously. But there have been times when they invite journalists in for these big marquee military parades because they want us to promote the image mm-hmm. and they want us to project that theater. But it really is theater. There's an announcement where they say the, pr- the recording will begin, and that's when the North Koreans know that they have to start performing. Mm-hmm. And so it really is, you get really get the sense when you're there, perhaps not, if you're there on your first trip as a journalist covering it, you may not be aware of what is actually happening, especially if you don't speak Korean, mm-hmm. because all you see is the theater. But when you've been there for multiple occasions, like I have for these events, and you and I understand Korean, so you see the signs, you hear the signals, and you understand that it's theater. And so it's, I think that's important as well, because we as journalists also need to recognize the role that we are playing. And I, I, I do think it's valuable for us to be there for those events. And the benefit that we have from being there is everything else that we get by being on the ground, everything that we can sense, everything that we see that we don't get from mm-hmm. the outside. 
But that role of projecting the images of strength is something we also need to be very aware of. But that theater makes you realize how their society works and the importance of propaganda in a way that uh, is so far beyond anything that I've ever seen in any other country. But it does make you realize how much revolves around the Kim family and that glorification of the Kim family and how central that is to the not only Kim Jong-un's sense of strength, but also this, it, it becomes an, a question of, exis, an existential question, because he's, the Kims have created a, a country that they believe will only exist if they are in power. And so it's just, it's like a monarchy to a millionth degree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's your impression that people really believe that or how much of it Maybe it's it's difficult to to say for certain, but do you think there is genuine support and love for the Kim family or people just understand what they're expected to say? I think it's it's really mixed. And I think that's something that we need to understand about the North Korean people as well, is that they, on the one hand, the regime has done such a, a thorough job of trying to restrict the flow of information, especially over the past two years when they've shut down the border. And yet there are many, previous to that shutdown, there were many North Koreans who were going to China on a daily basis and were exposed to the outside world and may have much more critical opinions or much more open or much more a broad vision and viewpoint on their own country. And yet they all know that to voice that criticism would be dangerous. And so... I do want to give the North Koreans credit for formulating their own opinions, but they also might make a decision on wanting to play the game within their country's rules so that they can ensure a better life for themselves. So that's something that's very hard for us to really fathom is why, if they understand how difficult their lives are, how poor their country is, while the rest of the region is flourishing, why they continue to stay loyal. But I think that's a very complicated question. Mm -hmm. People will make the decision about wanting to play the game within their own society, even if they dislike it or disapprove of it, because they feel that they have no other choice. I do think that moment where they can't take it anymore, where they can't play the game, or they're under danger because they've done something that might bring punishment is when they might make a different decision about whether they want to stay in North Korea and remain loyal to the regime. And we have 30, more than 30,000 North Koreans who've defected from North Korea over the decades. It's not easy to defect. I think it's very difficult both logistically and emotionally, but clearly there has been a, there is a population that has decided they can't play that game. With Kim Jong-un, I think that it would be very hard to get a clear answer from North Koreans when they're inside the country because they know better than to voice any criticism of the leadership, of the party, of the regime. It would be very dangerous. There's just no freedom of expression mm-hmm. in North Korea. And and I do but I do think that individually they may have some frustrations, certainly, when they're going without the basic necessities, but they also perhaps have faith that this man who managed to sit down with President, then President mm-hmm. Trump may be able to lead them out of their poverty and into a different mm-hmm. future. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. 
That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok, and over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I wanted to ask what we do know about conditions, particularly outside of Pyongyang. I, I know I was very struck during my reporting time there, just how you know how immediately when you leave the, the showcase city that you see on on the television news bulletins how quickly life becomes incredibly difficult. I've seen reports over the last few months, particularly with the pandemic restrictions that North Korea has put into place, that there are fears the country is on the verge of famine once again. You know, how, how much do we know about what, what life is like and how desperate the situation is away from the focus that we tend to get on the missile tests and what Kim Jong-un is doing now? Yeah, I unfortunately, because they've sealed the border so many of the foreign diplomats, aid workers, journalists who we relied on to give us a sense of what's happening on the ground have left and haven't 
been able to get back. And that's unfortunate because we do need eyes and ears on the ground to give us a more realistic portrait of how the country looks outside the propaganda. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right that Pyongyang, the socialist fairyland, as they call it, or the showcase capital, is meant to serve as an aspirational place for those who make the party proud. And this is a kind of this is a country where people can't travel freely and living in the capital is a real reward. Uh, and so then once you leave, as you say, it's just absolutely underdeveloped. It's devastating to see because it's when you contrast that with South Korea, for example, which has the same topography, mm-hmm. I should say had the same topography. And you see how the contrast between the two Koreas couldn't be starker mm-hmm. between the verdant mountains covered with trees in South Korea, lush, healthy, developed, and the absolutely devast- absolute devastation, the desert-like devastation of mm-hmm. the topography mm-hmm. in North Korea. But I think we, it's safe to say that even though we're not there, that things have gone, gotten very difficult for them, even more difficult for the North Koreans in the mm-hmm. past two years with that border closure. And I do think that the daily struggle of not having the right kind of food, not having enough food to eat, that this is something even the UN agencies will say that more than 40% of North Koreans don't have access to adequate food. They don't, I know from my own experience that clean water is very difficult. I was so sick every time I was in North Korea from food poisoning, from unclean water. This is a, this is an issue that many developing countries, underdeveloped countries face. The lack of medicine, I would get sick every month, but I wouldn't have access to medicine. So of course I had to bring my own, but it did highlight to me that when you have food poisoning, like I did every month, the North Koreans don't have medicine Mm -hmm. for that. And so we do, I did talk to doctors in the countryside who told me that the largest, the most common cause of death for children in North Korea is diarrhea, which is something that just blew my mind because I've never, I don't think I've heard of a child in the United States dying of diarrhea because that just is something that obviously is is such an easy thing for us to take care of but it's the the number of children under the age of 5 who die of diarrhea simply because they don't have the basic medicine and because they're eating the wrong kinds of food they can't digest gr- grasses and greens that they can't digest because they're so desperate. So I think all of this stuff, and this is just one example, but all of this is happening, but we're not seeing it. We're not capturing it. We're not witness to it. And so I do think that we should assume that there's a lot of um, suffering that's going on in parts of the country. And that suffering has been exacerbated by the border Mm -hmm. shutdowns. And I want to draw attention to that because I think we should remember that even though the propaganda is really trying to project this image of strength and tr- focusing on this, uh, trying to project this image of strength and trying to create a sense of pride in the North Korean people, that there's a lot of collateral damage. Mm-hmm. And when you invest and you pour your resources into that program, it means there's a segment of the population that is is suffering from the lack of investment in basic infrastructure. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really and important should, point to make. Yeah. And I should point out, because those weapons do bring on sanctions. 
And it's not just that the money's going into the program, but then the world, the UN, the United States, uh, Japan, other countries are just trying to impose even more and more sanctions mm -hmm. to both punish North Korea and to stop the flow of money into that program. But then it's, it is the people who suffer. And that's the decision that Kim Jong-un has made when he thinks about his long-term strategy, which is that short-term suffering. And it hasn't been short-term, it's been decades, but that suffering is a price that he is willing to pay so that he gets the bigger goal of amassing these weapons and perhaps eventually sitting down with the United States for a nucle nuclear negotiation that he hopes and expects will pay off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's a really important point to make. And I think that's, that's, that's perhaps a good place to, to wrap this up, having really shifted the focus beyond these missile tests and what seems to be a, a resumption of really ambitious testing that the regime is, is signaling. It's, I think, sobering and, and important to hear you lay out the cost and the, the toll that this takes on Kim Jong-un's citizens. Let me ask you one, one brief and an unfair final question, which given what we're seeing now, the resumption of, of long-range missile tests what appears to be activity at the main nuclear test site, a new conservative president in South Korea. How serious could this situation get? Could we return to where we were in 2017, where it, it really did feel like the situation was poised on the brink of conflict? It will be up to the South Korean president-elect, uh, President Biden, the leaders of you know, China, Russia, and Japan, the countries surrounding North Korea, to try to make sure that there's a sense of urgency around the development of North Korea's nuclear arsenal without raising tensions to the degree that we saw in 2017. Uh, it's going to be tough. And I think we're starting to see that drumbeat of war. We're starting to see shows of force by South Korea, by the United States. And that is always worrying. It's necessary, right? Because they want to remind North Korea of their capability. But what we don't want to see is a return to that extreme on the brink of war mood that we saw in 2017. And it's up to the, and, and that really was President Trump, President Trump was responding in such a dramatic fashion. So I do think that if these leaders understand that we don't want to go back to that, but that you still want to raise a sense of urgency, that there's a way to avoid the extreme tensions of 2017 while still making sure that we're paying attention to the urgency of of dealing with North Korea's nuclear ambitions. And I hope, and I really hope that when, if and when North Korea does either launch another ballistic missile or conduct a nuclear test, which we all hope doesn't happen, but if, if there is another provocation, that it it clarifies for all of these leaders in the region that they do have a common interest in reducing this tension. And so it does mean that there's potential for all of them. And they don't always agree, China and the United States in particular. But if they can find a way to find common ground, that would be that would be a way to lead the region out of tensions and to get back to nuclear negotiations, which is what we really need. We really need to get North Korea to come back to the negotiating table so that we can find a way to stop the development of that program. And for me, I do, I have to say, I do see a light at the end of the tunnel because I think that's what Kim Jong-un wants. And we just saw North Korea issue stamps and I knew this was going to happen. So they have it. They right now have a huge photo exhibition of Kim Jong-un. They've just released stamps also celebrating his 10th year in power. And there's a stamp of him with President Trump. And so we know that that 
relationship with the United States is important to Kim Jong-un. And I think that's something that we need to keep in mind, that eventually he does want to get back to negotiations, whether he admits it or not, and that that is the light at the end of the tunnel that we have to be looking to. A rare moment of hope and optimism to end on, which I'm very grateful for. Well, <laughs> some people might say it's foolish, but I think that's, we have to think that there's a way right, out of this. Exactly. Jean, thank you so much for, for being with us and for all of your terrific insights uh, and expertise, listeners. You can understand why we were so excited to have Jean join us on the podcast. This has been the World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on our website, newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or even an enemy, and please rate us and leave a nice review. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back later in the week. I'm Katie Sallard. Thanks for listening and until next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.